0: So what we're going to do this morning is um, we're going to interview each other um, as, um, as debut novelists, um, and, and in, in, in the hope that some of the things that we, that, that we might talk about uh, around creating um, our first novels and, uh, and the process of publishing them will be, uh, will be useful, helpful, insightful, and all of that.
1: Okay, so um, I'll introduce Will, this is Will Menmuir, um, and he is based in, in North Cornwall, um, although he's not from there originally, born in Stockport I believe, yeah. um, a place that's very close to my heart. Um, and The Many is his his first novel and it was um, long-listed for the, the Man Booker Prize in 2016. Um, and he's also, uh, he also writes poetry,
0: I believe. A short story, short so stories. I keep my poetry okay. very, very, very private. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Fiona Mosley um, wrote Elmet, which is um, deeply set in, in, in Yorkshire, her home county. Um, Fiona lives in, in, in York, and um, Fiona's uh, novel is shortlisted for The Man Booker in 2017, and was also long-listed for The Women's Prize. It's done phenomenally well. And um, do you mind if I start off with a question?
1: Go, go, go ahead. So yeah.
0: I'm, I'm interested in, in the genesis of, of novels, where these things came from, especially the, especially a first novel. Um, the the <laughs> seeds of that novel, obviously, you could go back as far as. I don't know as far as you can remember probably for a first novel but where what was the point at which you thought I've got a novel there and this is something that I'm going to complete
1: yeah thank you Um, uh, so I think there is something particularly interesting about a first novel in some respects because um, the way I feel about this book is that um, I think it's the most immediate and urgent book that I will I will write. I hope it's not my best book. I think that'd be very depressing if it was the beginning of my career and I thought that this was my magnum opus in some way. I really hope to improve on my craft, but I I think it's unlikely, not saying it's impossible, but I think it's unlikely that I will, I will write a book with as, as much emotional urgency as this one. Um, and I think that's because there's something about a first novel um, which you sort of pour you pour your soul into. Um now this book is in no way autobiographical you'll be if, if you've read it you'll be very pleased <laughs> very pleased to hear that there's there's no, nothing from my own experiences in this book. Um that said um it, it it is a it kind of a cipher for some of the things that I was feeling about society and and the world um at the time that I wrote it. Um in terms of the genesis of the book though uh, I'd been sort of writing um, this and that for a while. Um, I'd never tried to have anything published and I'd never really finished anything. Um, I hadn't even really finished any short stories or, or anything like that. Um, but I knew that I, I wanted a project. I wanted to <laughs> I wanted to do something. Um, I was sort of there in my, my mid-twenties and I wasn't really happy with my my working situation and I was living in a shared house in London and I just sort of thought, what is what is this life you know what am I what am I doing Um, and I had this idea for this book when I was on the train Um, I'd been visiting my parents back in York and I was I was on the train on a Monday morning going through to London and this kind of very familiar landscape was going by in the train and I think there's something about trains which allows you to see the world from a slightly different perspective and you sort of cut through it and you see everything all at once but only for a, a kind of a very very small moment. So, I had this idea of this house um, and this family in it, and that's where the novel element really came from. It's about um, a small family of three: um, a father who they sort of call Daddy, and um, and then Kathy and Daniel, teenage children, and they build a house themselves on land that they don't own. Um, by cops and they live kind of self-sufficiently and come into conflict with the local landowner. Um, so that's where it came from. And from that point, I said to myself, this is the book that you're going to finish. This is the project that you're going to finish. Um, even if you have... I'm, te- I'm a terrible magpie, so, you know, I'll, I'll read something and I think, oh, I'll want to write something like that or I'll see something and be inspired by that. And I said to myself, don't... You know, even if you have a new idea that you think's better, tough... This is the one that you're going to write and finish, so I didn't allow myself to do any any other projects during during its uh, writing process. But um, so that's that's how I came to write it. And yeah, and I, I, I suppose I was feeling quite angry about some <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I guess I was, but um, I I poured a lot into it. Um, and that's why, as I say, I think it's the most immediate book I'll write, most urgent book.
0: There is quite a lot of a, a lot of anger in there. It like. I, I, yeah. I, I, would it be okay? If, would you would you be happy to do a, do a short reading?
1: Yes, I will. From it. And then I'm going to um, ask you exactly the same question that you. I'm just deflating.
0: Me. I want to ask all the questions <laughs> here, and I don't therefore I don't have to answer any questions.
1: <laughs> You're sort of jumping in with the questions. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah I'll, I'll read, and then and then we'll ask about yours. <clears throat> uh, I'm just going to read from the beginning because it it kind of sets the scene. Um, So, as I mentioned, it's narrated by a teenage boy called Daniel, and he lives with his father, uh, who's this huge sort of bare-knuckle boxing kind of mountain of a man, and his sister, Kathy. Um, And this is um, just at the start, aptly named chapter one. Um, Okay. We arrived in summer when the landscape was in full bloom and the days were long and hot and the light was soft. I roamed shirtless and sweated cleanly and enjoyed the hug of the thick air. In those months I picked up freckles on my bony shoulders and the sun set slowly and the evenings were pewter before they were black, before the morning seeped through again. Rabbits gambled in the fields and when we were lucky, when the wind was still and a veil settled on the hills, we saw a hare. Farmers shot vermin and we trapped rabbits for food, but not the hare, not my hare. A dam, she lived with her drove in a nest in the shadow of the tracks. She was hardened to the passing of the trains and when I saw her, I saw her alone as if she had crept out of the nest unseen and unheard. It was a rare thing for creatures of her kind to leave their young in summer and run through the fields. She was searching, searching for food or for a mate she searched if she were a hunting animal, as if she were a hare who had thought again and decided not to be prey, but rather to run and to hunt, as if she were a hare who had found herself chased one day by a fox and stopped suddenly and turned and chased back. Whatever the reason, she was unlike any other. When she darted, I could barely see her, but when she stopped for a moment, she was the stillest thing for miles around. Stiller than the oaks and pines, stiller even than the rocks and pylons, stiller than the railway tracks. It was as if she had grabbed hold of the earth and pinned it down with her at its centre, and even the quietest, most benign landmarks spun outrageously around, while all of it, the whole scene, was suckered in by her exaggerated, globular, amber eye. And if the hair was made of myths, then so too was the land at which she scratched, now pocked with clutches of trees, once the whole county had been woodland and the ghosts of the ancient forest could be marked when the wind blew. The soil was alive with ruptured stories that cascaded and rotted, then found form once more and pushed up through the undergrowth and back into our lives. Tales of green men peering from thickets with foliate faces and legs of gnarled timber. The calls of half-starved hounds rushing and panting as they snatched at charging quarry. Robin Herder and his pack of scrawny vagrants whistling and wrestling and feasting as freely as the birds whose plumes they stole. An ancient forest ran in a grand strip from north to south. Boars and bears and wolves, does, hearts, stags. Miles of underground fungi, snowdrops, bluebells, primroses. The trees had long since given way to crops and pasture and roads and houses and railway tracks, so little copses like ours were all that was left. Daddy and, I, uh, Daddy and Kathy and I lived in a small house that Daddy built with materials from the land hereabout. He chose for us a small ash copse, two fields from the East Coast mainline. Far enough not to be seen, close enough to know the trains well. We heard them often enough. The hum and ring of the passenger trains, the choke and gulp of the freight, passing by with their cargo tucked behind in painted metal tanks. They had timetables and intervals of their own, drawing growth rings around our house with each journey ringing past us like prayer chimes the long indigo adelantes and pendolinos that streak from london to edinburgh the smaller trains that bore more years with rust on their rattling pantographs old cart horse trains chugging up to the knacker they moved too slowly for the younger tracks and slipped on the hot rolled steel like old men on ice So now it's your turn to answer the question. How did you you come come to write um, your first novel? Why why did you make the selection of this story? And what was it about the story that compelled you to finish it?
0: Honest answer um, is I didn't want to write this story at all. (laughs) um, I'd been avoiding writing this story for probably six months when I started Mm. writing it. And the, the I remember the moment I realised this um, was at a um, I, I was on an Arvon Foundation residential writing course called Start Starting to Write, and I I've been writing short stories, I've been, been writing a bit of poetry, um, I'd, and I kept it all very very quiet and secret. I um, I I'd, I'd, I'd almost stopped telling people that i that, that I was writing um but i took with me a, a story a short story that I was dead proud of and um i thought this is this is definitely the one and i took it and showed it to the two tutors who are two published writers i thought what they're going to do is they're going to say um we've got to show this to, to our agents. And we're going to show this to um, are we are going to take it now let's just stop the sort of stop <laughs> the week because because they're going to they're going to it's going to be great and both of them read it very carefully and uh, and then Came back to me and said, "Hmm, is not not really, um, <laughs> in the nicest possible way." And they set up a situation in which they could say that. And and they both said the same thing, which is, and I don't know how it was as if they had psychically communicated this because they hadn't talked about it. Um, they they said, "We think you're, you're 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 not writing a story. You're writing something so oblique and so." Um, almost like you're writing a story that's, that, that's getting in the way of the real story that you, that you need to write. And they said, go away and write the story that you, that's in the back of the head, in, in the back of your head, the one that's niggling away and won't let you go. And I, th- and I thought, well, that's a load of rubbish. I don't, definitely don't have a story like that. Went down the sat. And I wrote the 1,000 words, yeah. which then became the beginning of, um, of, of The Many. And pretty much word for word there they're, they're, they're as, as I wrote them. And I took them back. And I thought, uh, well, this is the, it's, it's, it's no good. And I showed showed them the same tutors t- again, and they said, said, yep, that's it. <laughs> I said, well, you know, obviously it'll need a lot of work, and they said, nope, that's it. That's that's the story you need to tell. And even then, I I put it away because I didn't feel comfortable telling this particular story <laughs> um, for another few months. And I, but everything I wrote after that, I realised all I was doing was I was writing back to the same story. Mm. I was I was referring back to it um so so then it it was more a case of feelings and research and going out into the world and just writing the next bit and the next bit and the next bit um without any idea that that it was going to really i knew it was going to become a novel but i thought i'll be i'll be happy if i just finish it and it goes back in the drawer and no one ever needs to see it and uh, and then it didn't work out that way so, uh, <laughs> but my, my then my it was long
1: listed for the Booker. book so. <laughs> yeah,
0: rather surprisingly yeah. Um, but I, I, I guess it was it was a story I didn't feel I had the right to tell because mine does have although again not all autobiographical but it has the, this seed of, uh, of, 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 of true experience in it um, and again, probably quite a lot of, similar, similar to yours, uh, uh, quite a lot of anger mm. in it. Um, and it was quite raw as it came out. Mm. It's probably still quite raw as it was. It, as I it think that's
1: one of its, its best features.
0: Yeah. yeah. And, and again, like you said it right at the beginning, I, I, I don't think I will write something with, something again with probably quite so much emotional intensity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because I think that's one of the things that first novels... Are really good for is there? You've be, you've almost been working up to this moment for mm. years, mm. and I think the so, so, my editor is, is is he is he's a particular. He's an editor of first novels. He's, oh, really? It's his favourite thing, yeah. and he collects first novels. And in fact, he's written a novel called First Novel.
1: Okay. <laughs> um,
0: in which a in which an editor is editing someone's first novel. It's all <laughs> very very self referential. In okay, meta. Um. <laughs> but um, but I, so so now i've got a bit of a thing about first novels yeah. as well okay and and and, the, and again that, that emotional intensity that you tend to get yeah um, in those in those people, first people novels.
1: really pour their hearts into it
0: yeah absolutely yeah. and i know from looking out here, yeah, there're quite there're there quite a few people i know who are, who are either working on on a first novel or um, or, 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 a, or or have published or yeah um, because i'm sure that, that, that experience yeah. hopefully right uh, rings true
1: would
0: you like to read some of your uh, personal haul? OK, well, I, again, I'll, I'll read right from the beginning. Um, I d- the, the passage that I wrote at the Arvind Foundation was um, the thousand words actually doesn't appear until much later in the, in the book. Um, and to read that actually would almost spoil it if, if, if anyone plans to read it. Um, so, 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 so I'll read from, read from the beginning, which I actually wrote about six months into the writing of it. Ethan. A thin trail of smoke rises up from Perrins, where no smoke has risen for ten years now. Ethan spots it close in, a few hundred yards from shore, as he scans the houses. A regularity of grey spirals where there should be a break in the line. He turns to see if Daniel has seen it too, and shouts back at his wheelman to keep his eyes on the course until they've cleared the rocks and made land. He's as calm as he can be. He lowers his gaze and busies himself on the foredeck, kicking the empty creels and crates back into place and combing the nets laid highest for snags, waiting to feel the boat grounding through the soles of his boots. Clem is waiting for them as they approach, knee-deep in water that could be a lake for all it is moving, holding the winch cable. He moves aside and shouts up to them a greeting or a curse that is drowned in the engine noise as Daniel brings the boat in too fast onto the beach. Ethan takes a step forward and steadies himself against the gunwale, fires a final insult at Daniel and throws a line over to Clem. By the time it has fallen into Clem's hands, the winchman has secured it to the cable in a fluid motion and is climbing up out of the water towards the machinery. The boat's engine cuts out and the winch takes up the drone. Daniel doesn't wait for Clem to bring the ladder as the Great Hope pauses above the wave line or even for the boat to clear the water. He throws his bag onto the beach and jumps down before the winch takes up the slack. He walks up over the gray stones, bags slung across his back, and Ethan decides against calling him back to finish the job. There's little enough to do, and Daniel is right to want to be well away from him. From where he stands on deck, Ethan looks past his wheelman at the smoke still rising from Perrin's place. Perrin, who would wait at the window for first sight of the lights of the fleet, who would run down the beach and stare as the lights attached themselves to grey shapes, and the grey shapes became boats. Perrin, who coupled the boats to the winch, careful and slow, and as he did this, Ethan would look over the gunwales to see the thick brown thatch of hair on the boy's head. Ethan's fingertips trace unconsciously the smooth crisscross of railroad scar lines on his right arm. Unnatural calm. Clem says, as Ethan climbs down the ladder. So Clem has not noticed the smoke at Perrin's. Clem's eyes are, as they should be, fixed on the horizon from the moment he arrives at the beach in the early morning, and he won't look back towards his home until he's relaunched the boats late on. Ethan takes the guide pole and follows the Great Hope up to the flat, pushing it back on course as, it's, as it grates its way across the stones. Ethan's is the first boat back. And the others will limp in throughout the morning. All holds empty, he's sure of that. There's been no talk from the fleet above the radio static. No talk until a catch is made. It's a rule. Sure as not setting sail on a Friday is a rule. Sure as talking low when you spot a petrol close in is a rule. Sure as not moving into parents is a rule. <laughs>
1: Um, Thank you. I really, really love that opening. Um, uh, One of the questions that I'd written down um, to ask you is about um, Cornwall. I mean, of course, I've got to ask about Cornwall because we're right here in Cornwall. Um, Your book is set in Cornwall. You live in Cornwall, but you're not from Cornwall. Um, So what I wanted to ask was, well, you might not consider yourself an outsider anymore. But if you do consider yourself an outsider, do you think that being an outsider gives you a particular perspective on a community and a place, and if so, what kind of perspective might that be?
0: So I'm definitely an outsider. I, um, in fact, I think that the outsiderness of it is not so much the outsiderness of being uh, of living in Cornwall and being an outsider. It's about being an insider or an outsider wherever you are. So I grew up in a in, in a small hamlet. Just outside outside <coughs> Manchester, it was on a on a on a hill that overlooked Manchester, and there were maybe a handful of houses and a pub, and that was it. And because I grew up there, I was, I mean, I, actually, I don't, I don't think I was even uh, even an insider there. I used to work in the pub, but it was the sort of pub that you'd walk into, and if you if they didn't know you in the <coughs> pub, everyone would just go quiet and just stare, and it was really really quite unfriendly. And there were also some, but the insiders were looked after. So there was one of the guys that I used to work with at the pub who, um, who, who, whose father died very unexpectedly. He was about, he was about eighteen. This lad and it, and it, and it absolutely rocked him to the core. He kept on coming to work, but you could see that he was walking around like a shell for days. And the local guys, they didn't really know what to do because it was sort of a, quite a, it was a, quite a men-only sort of pub really it was a, not a very friendly pub it was it was guys who 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 maybe i think they were the sort of guys actually who were, who, who were in your novel uh-huh. yeah. they, they they they're um they're the sort of Gruff. landlords oh okay oh, right. and who who maybe make most of their money legitimately but definitely there's 10 or 20 percent that's yeah, yeah, yeah. um, side. <laughs> and one of them just said look um we want to help you out and he just put a, put a wadge of, of, of cash in, a, in, a, in an envelope on the, on, on the bar and just pushed it across to him. It was a big wadge of cash. And, and, he said, uh, and, it, and you could see, he looked at him. and he was like, uh, what's this for? He said, "He said it's just, just for you. I just want, you know, just for you to take some time and to look after yourself. And, you know, we want to look after you. He said, obviously, we'd want you to run a couple of errands. <laughs> <laughs> and and actually so lots <laughs> that of is straight of, up yeah that yeah it's straight up so when i read you know yeah. when I, was reading it, I, was like, oh, I know those guys they're definitely yeah they they're, they're yeah. the guys that i know but again they sort of they sort of come in into this almost emotionally stunted man and actually the book is probably full of emotionally stunted men who can't really talk about they didn't talk about grief they never said we're really sorry that your father died they they they, 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 they and they definitely wanted something back for their, <laughs> for their watch of cash that they were giving him. So they, they, they kind of made it in there. Um, do I, uh, I, I do feel a bit, I think I will always feel a bit like an outsider in where, where I live, because it's the sort of place where Timothy, who, who moves into Parents House, Parents House will always be known as Parents House. My house will always be known as Jem's from the first guy who lived there. And many years from now, it may be known as Giles's after the last the guy who lived there before me. And maybe, I don't know, I don't, I, it, it, <laughs> maybe in 100 years or so, someone will say, oh, it was, it, it was Will and Emma's. Um, but I don't know. But it's that sort of place where everything's got this, the history of that place is embedded into it. And you never really feel like, you, you sort of feel like you're passing through it, really. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there is, a, there is an element of, of yeah. outsiderness there. I don't know okay. whether I've answered the question or I've just rambled.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting ramble if it was a ramble. <laughs>
0: Um, I, 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 so I I was I was talking about those the the the, the different sorts of characters there who, who I, I recognise those characters I recognise the characters for, who who are the, who are the landlords who who definitely have this sort of. Other side of their business that they don't talk about? Well, I was, are, they, are they people you sort of saw as you were as you were on these train journeys and thought, oh, I, I can kind of picture <laughs> them there? Or, 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 or did they come from anywhere? Because they felt real to yeah,
1: me. Yeah, uh, I mean, they're real. So um, they come from different places. Um, you know, as I say, this isn't, is not is no way my experience, but it's only kind of a couple of steps removed. You know, I, I know... Uh, so in, in this book, one of the things is that, that um, the local community, which is an old um, sort of West Yorkshire coal mining community, um, which is, you know, now most of the people are out of work, um, sort of kind of claiming benefits, but also doing actually a lot of work on farms, but... Um, In a way which isn't recognised, getting paid cash in hand, um, kind of farmers and landlords sort of taking advantage of this a bit, and and knowing that they can pay them less because they're sort of getting getting money from the state as well, and it's this kind of kind of thing that's going on. And um, that sort of world, um, I guess I, I mean I, so um, you know my my school was was just on the south side of York and. Um, its catchment area had a big big rural community um, quite a number of travelers went to the school as well so I guess they're people that I know from school um, you know like I mean there are examples of I think there's a point in the book where the two this, the two sons of the landlord um, steal somebody's tractor and drive it through through a barn and that that's something that someone from my school did he wasn't a landlord's son he was a he was um, a lad who was in foster care and other end of the, the spectrum, but he he was eventually he was expelled from my school at age twelve poor lad because he he was obviously having a difficult time and he stole one of the six former's mopeds drove it to a farm stole a tractor drove the tractor through and uh, not through the barn door through the through the walls of the barn and out the other side got out of the tractor stole the farmer's car and drove the wrong, wrong way down the motorway. <laughs> Um, pursued by police, age twelve. Wow.
0: Okay.
1: So, um, <laughs> my school was a very strange mix in that it had people like that, and it also had people who were actually very wealthy and probably would would have been sent to a, a local private school if if the comprehensive wasn't so good. Yeah. So there was like this this huge social kind of. Um, span at my school, which was very interesting. Um, so a lot of the stories come from that. Um, my, my brother-in-law uh, is from this part of the world. He sort of dragged himself up after having a, a tough upbringing. He's now sort of went back to school and has got a degree and stuff like that. But um, he was kind of age 14, sort of working in these sorts of places, dealing with these, these farmers. Um, you know and it is is the kind of the kind of situation where you 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 do go and meet in a car park and then you get picked up and you get taken out to work on the land and then you get given 20 quid um mm. that kind of thing and i'm sure that's very kind of a familiar story in cornwall in in some places as well um but i guess what i was trying to tap into is this is this post industrial setup mm. where um you know the People who once worked on the kind of land uh, get kind of taken off the land and put into factories and mines, mm. um, you know, in the 19th century, and then when they're no longer productive, they sort of get spat out. Mm. And where, what happened to these communities after that? That was kind of one of the concerns that I kind of try and explore through this this one small unit of f- this family. Um, what was your question? It was... where do, The characters. Yeah, the characters, so, so that's where yeah. they come from, from uh, just, just from... Yeah, I, I, I think um, just from observing, mm. <laughs> observing things in the local area, you know, it's not uh, it's not my direct kind of experience. But it's it's yeah, it's certainly this is true to kind of the experiences of people that I I know and have talked to. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: And the, the phrase. T- sorry. Bas-
1: sorry. Yeah. My When my mum read it, she noted the phrase there's a phrase bastard farmers mm which is something that my dad my dad always says because he i mean he's now you know he's retired now but he worked for most of his life as a, a social worker so you know like reasonably middle class but when he was when he was a lad in cambridgeshire actually he was he was um, he was working on these farms and you know like the farmer the rich farm would drive up in his jag and like give them all the kind of their, their daily wages so he always i'm just sure this isn't i'm sure this is a farming community so not all farmers are bastards <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I, lots of farmers are very nice but i i just kind of like this, uh, <laughs> this i would say the same thing, thing about fishermen actually, yeah yes yeah, because... fishermen
0: Fish, the, the fishermen yeah. I met, and I did meet a lot yeah. of fishermen while I was writing, yeah. they were similarly, they were lovely, lovely people. And they, funnily, I think th- those characters, um, they're more characters from your neck of the woods, actually. Right. Um, from the, Although a little bit further yeah. north in County Durham, when I was teaching mm. um, in some small mining communities where the, Bottom had fallen out of the industry, and you had maybe two generations of families which hadn't seen regular work. They hadn't, you know, for for so long. And they were things like they were they, they weren't quite prize fighters, but mm. they were um, what were the, cage fighters. Oh. Some of the dads were, cage, and they'd oh. and they'd turn up to collect their collect their kids, and they would they would they'd come into the room. They were huge presences, just muscle. But actually, they were just the same as their children. Mm. They were you, you sort of scratch that surface, surface, and they were these really almost these really vulnerable children, yeah. really, who were just in these huge men's bodies. Yeah, yeah. In fact, anyone who saw the the, the, Grace, and the Grace Perry. I was did,
1: about to say the Grace and Perry. About masculinity. Yeah, yeah. And
0: he went to those same communities, and I was like, I, those yeah, were the those... dads. So those actually became the fishermen. Yeah. Um So they weren't actually fishermen; yeah. they were miners or the sons of miners. Um who weren't able to express their anger or their grief or whatever um but yeah. I never I, yeah't I yeah. that, that only occurred to me quite quite late, late, a bit later late on yeah
1: yeah um so I guess um I want to ask you also about um yeah the the process of, of publication and um so you wrote this novel, which is the the one that you you kind of needed to write and then um and then, what happened? Sort of, was it overnight kind of success, publication, listing?
0: Um, um, was it? No, was it, it was it was it was all an accident. It was um, I didn't uh, I, I, I not I actually hadn't, genuinely had not thought about publication. I thought I've got to write this book and I've got to make it the best I can, and that's all I cared about. Even if I had to put it away at the end of the, the end of the day, and it would become a thing that maybe was read within my family and um, my my motivation for writing it really was so that i wouldn't be a hypocrite when i uh, when, when i talked to my children and said say you know you've got to go and do the thing that's important to you rather than taking the safe option which was what i was i i was um i i, I was told to you know you got go and, go and get, go and do the safe option do, do your teaching degree and I was told to <laughs> got because you because you'll always be able to earn way don't and not that my parents ever said don't be a writer, but it was kind of they didn't want to talk about it. I think because it was quite it was a, it was a big risk. Yeah. And so I spent a long time doing the safe thing, and um, and then things change, and you realise that actually you you need to start taking risks. Otherwise, you're going to be the person who's not done that really important creative thing that you need to do. Um, so, so, so that was what led to me writing it, and then it, I was I, I, the bit I missed was after the Arvon Foundation course. I decided I needed structure, so I took an MA in creative writing at, at Manchester Met University uh, online. So in the evenings I was studying um, after my after after my day job and after the kids had gone to bed, and I did that almost purely because I need someone on my back saying. I need another 2,000 words. I need another 4,000 words. Um, because I, I originally trained as a journalist and I'm used to an editor saying, right, where, where are my words? And I still need that now. Mm. Um, I set my own deadlines now. Mm. So, um, And at the end of the course, my tutor said, uh, oh, it just happens to be that I'm a commissioning editor for for Salt Publishing. Would you be interested? Because we'd be interested in, 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 in seeing the novel. And... Um, I took a while to think about it um, and then yeah. said, Yeah, actually lots of the lots of the writers who I admire um are published through Salt. Yeah. Alison Moore it's a
1: wonderful Alice
0: Thompson. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it, and I'd been reading a lot of their work and I thought actually if those authors trust Salt with their work and they're and they're prepared to take the creative risk on um they, they offered me a lot of control over the book. Um, so 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 yeah, that was. Uh, it, it went on from there, and, uh, and they, they did warn me. They said, you know, if if it's successful, you'll sell maybe 300, 400 copies, and and they said, you, you know, you need to be prepared to be happy with that because um, it's you know, that's that, that it, it's it's a it's a literary novel. It's uh, it's not a simple read. It's not it's not a, a read that you can just whip through and go, oh yeah, I read that. Um, it, it, it takes an investment. And, and they said, you know, we're, we're, not sh- we're not 100% sure that it's going to find a huge readership. And so when they phoned up with the news about the long <laughs> listing, I had, I had my editor, just uh, my publisher, Chris, just literally screaming down the phone at me. I think it, it, it made no sense whatsoever. He was just screaming, well, well. And, and I hadn't picked up the phone. I'd, I picked up the phone an hour after it. So I had these voicemail, voicemails with just him screaming. <laughs> and somewhere in it, I heard, and Longlist! And, 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 and my first response to that was, um, this is, Chris has got a, a sense of humor. <laughs> and I genuinely, I, I, I thought, yeah, that's, that's Chris winding me up because that would be the sort of thing he'd find amusing. And then I had to find out later that other people started saying, "Oh no, it's in the papers." So, <laughs> w- what about you? What was the w- yeah? So,
1: sort of? um, so I, I finished it in the summer of 2016, and the reason that I finally finished it is because I, well, because I'd made this promise to myself that I wouldn't start another project until I'd finished this one. Yeah. Um, I, I had this other project that I wanted to start, and so that made me finish this book. Um, <clears throat> so I finished it off and. Um I showed it to my partner and that was about it. Um and then I, I sent it off um to an agent. Um, a very small agency, and if there's anyone in the audience who's kind of looking to send send books to agents, um I think sometimes it's 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 good to kind of not be wowed by these huge agencies because you'll just be sort of one person among
0: yeah.
1: among a huge list that they might not necessarily sort of care that much about but I went for a very small agency and they they put a lot of time into into the project um so my agent Leslie um kind of helped me edit made some really important suggestions to the book um I kind of got it ready for submissions and they sent it she said we're gonna go we're gonna go big so we're gonna we're gonna send it out to all of what the, who she considered to be the top editors at the top publishing houses and she said you know if that doesn't pay off then obviously we'll Go to the next step um the first response that we had uh was from John Murray, and they wanted to see me um and nobody else did. I had lots of very nice responses, but the only the only actual solid offer that we had was from John Murray, but it was it was the first response yeah. that we got so that was you know that was it's really not a bad re- response it's to not have. <laughs> no but it it was really nice um but yeah, it, did, it meant that when when the, the rejection started coming in, it didn't didn't matter so much. So, published it with John Murray Originals, which is John John Murray is the um, sort of an old old publisher, and it's part of uh, Achat, and they've got this little side list called John Murray Originals, which is where they try to take some risks with books. Um, it's kind of them trying to do a sort of independent publishing thing within <laughs> within a big um, multinational company. So, they were going to publish. Yeah, on that, and it was um, you know straight to straight to kind of paperback sort of thing, and the print run was going to be a thousand, and certainly yeah, it was you know we'll be lucky if we sell that many, um, but I got a call before the book was published um, from my editor, and similarly she. I uh, had lots of missed calls on my phone from her, and I thought, well, you know, this can wait. There's no such thing as a publishing emergency. Um, so I was, <laughs> I, was on, I, was, I was on you know, my dog walk, and she called again, and I thought, OK, fine, fine. Um, so I took the call, and she said, are you sitting down? So I sort of uh, just kind of sat on uh, this uh, outside table at a cafe. And she said, um, Elm, it's been long-listed for the booker. And I said, the book a prize. (laughs) Um, And she said, yes. And so the book wasn't published yet. So I had no idea that it had, I didn't know what the process was. So I didn't know that it had been submitted. I didn't, I had no idea that it would have been seen. Um, And then she said, oh, but you've got to keep it secret for two days. and that was very difficult. So that was that was kind of the moment at which things changed. And they the the print run was going to be a thousand, and they kind of upped up to the figure after that because of the publicity. So, um, yeah, that's that was the moment.
0: So um, it wasn't on. Your, was it on your radar? Was it sort of no, swinging around uh, your head that there was a long list coming out? And
1: no, I don't. I don't even really follow. I mean, I I have followed it this year just because it's sort of bringing it all back. But it's not something. I wasn't. I really wasn't immersed in the literary world. Um, you know, I didn't really do any courses. I didn't do, I didn't, I mean, not for any particular, I just I just did, you know, I just didn't. Um, I was doing, a, by then I was doing a PhD in, in history at the University of York. Um, but I didn't submit any short stories for publication. I didn't kind of, I, I wasn't immersed in any kind of writing community. Mm. Um, not even a local community, because I'd just always been very shy and very private about my work. Mm. That's the only reason. And, and so I think it was it was a huge shock to me, because I hadn't really followed these things, and it was a huge shock to everyone, because, you know, particularly everyone in York, who were, were in the right, were like, who is, <laughs> who is the, you know, and, and I, I remember going online, because I, you know, obviously the, the announcement was made at midnight of the long list, and I went on Twitter and I mean, to say that I was a, a, as a nobody is a complete understatement because I, I, I'd i never even, I'd not gone to a writing group. I'd not, you know, published a sh- I'd not done anything. Mm. <laughs> I didn't have a blog. Um, and so it was just quite funny seeing all these people tweeting, like, who the hell is Fiona <laughs> <being laughs> <about you?" laughs> Mosley? Um, but yeah then the book was sort of rushed rushed to publication and 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 yeah the last year of my life has been very different from the, the previous 29 years. <laughs> so what has
0: that impact been?
1: Um so it's been huge. It's been absolutely huge. It means that I can now um at the moment, at least, I'm making a living from writing, and that's that's important. Um, you know, it's obviously very very crass to talk about money, but actually, you need money to live, and you need money to write. Um, and I don't know how much longer that will last, because I, you know, having one book that's successful doesn't guarantee a career or anything like that. It's very early days, and I'm aware of that. But at the moment, I'm able to to write pretty much full time, and I'm trying to trying to make the most of that opportunity and just just spend my time doing that and and kind of um going around doing events like this which is very very nice um but yeah I've been to four different continents this year um <laughs> doing Amazing. book stuff uh I, yeah it's completely it's completely changed my life and um changed my sense of what my career is going to be I I didn't really have I thought I'll I'll try and do these creative things just as a kind of thing for me to make me feel Good about myself, or make me, you know, satisfy this desire in me to cr- to create things. I didn't think it was something that was a viable career option because, uh, you know, being a writer is like being a superhero. It's not a career that actually exists. It's,
0: it's for other people. It's, it's for other people. Yeah, absolutely, other people. Who for can other write people. Books. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: But um, yeah, it's been been interesting. Yeah.
0: Well, I, I I've got a thousand more questions about. Bears and wolves and <laughs> Elmet itself.
1: Elmet itself, um, yeah.
0: yeah. And, and, but but, I, but I, I think we would better.
1: Yeah, we'd better send move over
0: to, move to, to, audience, to, so. to our audience. If anyone does have any questions, um, either of us, both of us, will be happy to answer. If, yeah, can you just wait? For the microphone to get oh,
1: this, so th- can, everyone can hear the question. Okay. All right. The so there's a microphone
0: on. on its way around. <laughs> Hi,
1: this is for both of you, because at the beginning both of you talked about how angry you were writing your books, (laughs) and I'd really like to know, because both of you are successful and you come from, um, well, both of you are quite sensitive to the society around you, Um, so where did the anger come from that imbues your books, which I haven't read yet, but I will? (laughs) You go (laughs) first.
0: My honest answer to that um, is, it came from a very, very personal place for me. I, it, it, I, I think there are two. There are two, two different things. One is, on the surface, I'm a lovely person who's smiling and nice, but underneath there are all sorts Ooh. of things going. On. <laughs> um, no, um, I think, I think it all comes out in my writing because I love writing about the dark side of things. I like writing my. I've written quite a few horror stories and things like that, which um, I don't know. I don't know where they come from, but they come from somewhere, and I guess it's an outlet for some of that, maybe um, about the darker side of life it's uh, interested in in that side of things. Um, but also, I think it's about this this is a book that's about men, men and grief, um, and I was sort of. Trying to understand how not manners on the whole, but how some men process grief—not um, in a sort of therapy way, but in a sort of—I'm I'm interested in, in where that comes from. And I, I guess I'd have my own grief to deal with, and I, I think we all we all do on on, on some level. And and it was and, and, and there was probably residual anger and stuff that keeps you going. There, it was, it was an emotionally charged to write I guess
1: um yeah so again yeah again it's a personal thing um I won't go sort of too too deep into it but um I guess there was just a uh, I mean a lot of this book is about sort of bodies and having a body and inhabiting a body and that's something uh, some people kind of when they kind of go through puberty and sort of become adults they they deal with very easily they just sort of they just sort of sort of stride into their kind of adult selves uh that's something that I kind of struggled with a bit um finding my place in the world and finding out what it what it meant to go from being kind of um you know a little girl who kind of played cowboys and Robin Hood and football um to, to 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 becoming a woman with a female body who was a kind of um was looked at in a certain way at times um and it's it's not like it was a hugely negative thing. It was just a jarring. For me, it was jarring. Um, so a lot of it was dealing with that, um, and a lot of lot of the book is about dealing with what it means to inhabit a body, um, and and what that body says to other people in the world around you, and how that might be different from the person that you you see sort of underneath. That was one of the things. Um, another thing was, as I say, I was I'd, I'd you know, uh, I was living in London, and I. I'd, Graduated. I had absolutely no idea what to do with my life, and um, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to overstate this at all because I, you know, I don't come from a, a sort of hugely wealthy background or anything. But I come from a background where if if I slip up, I, I can always go home. You know, that I I have that security, but I certainly felt that like I was slipping up, and I I was renting and sort of all my money was going on on this rent and. My job situation was quite precarious at the time. You know, I was going from one short contract to the next, which is very typical, I think, of young young people at the moment. And again, it's not a sob story because I could have all. You know, it, there was never a, a case where I was going to be homeless or anything like that. There were people far worse off. But I just, I just thought, you know, what, 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 what am I doing? You know, I I couldn't see any future in which I could have a kind of a home or <laughs> own a house or you know anything like that. So I just was a bit bit angry and, and low um you know um my partner at the time split up with me just just think things like that which which led to this cocktail this co- <laughs> this cocktail of anger which um i'm happy to report i've completely expunged <laughs> with this book <laughs> <laughs> so talk about writing as therapy um uh th- this i i got it out you know all of the you know sort of what what i guess amounted to sort of almost f- 15 years of kind of worrying and, and struggle with all these these things kind of came out in this book and, and with characters who are very dissimilar from me but but have that kind of anger and I just kind of I poured it all into the book and then I finished the book and then and then I was able to sort of emerge as a kind of uh, an adult person who's able to sort of deal with things in an adult way <laughs> So that's that was my kind of cocoon and butterfly moment, I suppose.
0: (laughs) Brilliant. Sorry, not to get too heavy. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. yeah. I'm very interested. I'm very interested. um, Just picking up on what you said. You you have the two teenage characters in the book. You could equally well have chosen to tell it from the girl's point of view. You're talking about living in a body. So Mm. why did you pick on the boy as the narrator?
1: Um, so I see the um, uh, I, I see the three characters in the book as a kind of um, a, a kind of trinity. Not I mean not particularly in a sort of um, biblical sense, but but it, they're they're three parts of a whole. So none none of the three main characters in this family are themselves. A kind of full person, able to sort of go out in the world and deal with life in an effective manner. <laughs> um, they they need each other. So uh, Daniel, who's the boy, he's he's a boy, but he's you know he's he's kind of sort of between genders. He he takes on some typically feminine roles. Um, Kathy the girl is obviously a girl but she really kind of has the same sort of temperament as her father who's a huge bare knuckle boxer but because she doesn't have his physicality so, you know how do you deal with that kind of sense that you're sort of a protagonist or a hero if you're, if you, if you're not in the, the body of a, a hero you know uh, and then the father is of course very much a classical kind of uh, you know I talk, I talk of green men in the, the beginning of this he's a green man or he's a He's a mythical hero or he's you know the green Knight from and the Green Knight um, he's all of these things so so none of them are really kind of full people <laughs> um, and I want I wanted that to be the case or they are full people, but not yet I suppose um, and so they they're very interested in looking at each other and examining what it means to be that other person um, and they're united by love I knew that I wanted to have a loving family at the core I didn't want there to be to be sort of strife or uh, um, abuse within the family at all they they adore each other and they desperately want to know what it means to be that other person Um, and I think it's I think that's something that I I always start getting kind of um, very grandiose at this moment but I, I do I do genuinely think that the power of literature is that it allows us to consider what it's like to to truly consider what it's like to be another person um, and to get inside their head and see the world from their perspective and that's what's going on within within this family. So I chose the boy because uh, I guess the, the, the main characters I wanted to examine were the, this father and daughter um, and that relationship and he had to be kind of sitting back and observing um, but yeah, I mean he is a boy but also he's kind of, you know he's, you know, is he? What is he? He's the sort of that kind of classic between character, which I think is, uh, you know, storytellers are always between things, um, mm. between between communities or between time periods or between, uh, I guess in this case, genders. So he he's very much kind of watching, looking in both directions, and that's the point of him. So thank you for your question.
0: I guess in a way, between sort of that social realism of post-industrial world and this mythical Mythical, sort of going back to the green man and things like that that's what i think one of the really fascinating things about it is how you weave all of that into it yeah hi there i was wondering if it'd be possible to ask you both a question and have you both answer it if you have the time Um, you've spoken a bit about your kind of entry into the world of publishing and the experience once your books had been published and where they came from. I was wondering if you would share with us just a bit about your daily grind as a writer and your process. Do you write in the morning? Do you write at night? Do you sort of edit as you go? And particularly, Fiona, I, I assume that you're writing sort of all day, every day, just how you go about creating things. Thank you. Do you want to go first? Um, so when I, when I was writing this book, I was uh, I, I was stealing time. Um, I was I, I was working as a um, I was working I, I was working as a teacher in a, in a very large primary school. I was uh, I, I was part of the the management team of a of a, of a primary school. So I had a full on job and um, and a, a young child um, and. Um And then I was also running a, a magazine, an online magazine as well in the evenings, so this book came out of the time in which I should have been asleep um, <laughs> I, I I ought to have been sleeping when i so so it was after everyone had gone to bed um i i 'd then say right i 'm going to sit down i 'm just going to do the next bit and then when I could steal time um during the day i'd go for i'd 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 steal 15 minutes here 15 minutes there and then i then then when i left that job um i i i went freelance so i could do i could arrange my life as i liked it a bit more so i'd i'd steal time during the day to go for a walk or i'd go and visit a particular village and i'd just spend some time there and i'd talk to some people and then i'd come back and i'd write for 15 minutes and that's where the writing in um, some of the some of the early articles were about uh, oh, the, the, the guy who wrote a, wrote a novel in his van um, because I was literally stealing time in that van where I'd just sit in the back and just scribble um, and it sounds a little bit more more romantic than it actually is sitting on this clifftop <laughs> overlooking the sea and everything actually usually it was with the door closed um, <laughs> sitting on the floor of my van just scribbling because there's no internet, there's no phone signal up on the cliffs um, and I just need to get words on the page. And in a way, I'm still doing the same thing. So I still do other things. I I I um, I work. I st- I st- I still work with, with children and their reading and writing. Um, I still work with commercial clients. And I still quite enjoy all of those things. So the other day, I got up and wrote at... It was about half past four in the morning because I knew that was the only time I'd have. Um, last night was the first night in three weeks when I haven't sat down to write, actually, and I feel really guilty about it because I try and write every day. Um, But the night before, I I wrote minus three words, and that was all I did. And I thought, you know, I'll give some time to my manuscript. I deleted three words and then said, screw it, that's it, I'm not doing any more. Minus three words, I'll take that. And some days that's as good as it gets. What about you? Okay,
1: um, yeah, so when I I was writing... um, Elm, I, was, I was working full time in London and so I, I again tried to sort of snatch time um, and I found the commute to be quite good so I, I got uh, my commute involved a walk, a train, um, a tube and a walk and um, some, I'd have 15 minutes on the train. Uh, it's not a huge amount of time um, but I, I tried to make the most of it because you know novels happen sentence by sentence and if, if you only write a sentence then you're still going forward, and that's just what I tried to tell myself. Um, um, so I, I did that. I mean, a lot was made in the media, uh, sort of at the time of publication, that I wrote it on my phone, which is, you know, I wrote some of it on my phone. If I, if I, if I, if that's all I had, I wrote most of it on pen and paper and laptop. But, Don't believe what you read. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I worked it around that. Uh, then towards the end of of the process, I was. Uh, doing a PhD at the University of York. Um, and the honest answer is that my PhD suffered um, because I found myself compelled, you know, by this other project. Um, so that was quite quite difficult. I was sort of supposed to be doing And I was working on my PhD, but then I'd kind of do sort of this academic writing and research and then um, need to kind of exercise a different part of my my brain. So I'd, I'd go and, and do some writing. But I did it in a very piecemeal way. I didn't have any routine. Um, and I tried to... I tried not to beat myself up about it at all, actually, because I, I have a tendency to, you know, I always, um, I, I guess I always sort of considered myself to be quite a, a lazy person who sort of went around and just like tried to. I, I would, I would honestly just scrape through all aspects of life, and most of my brain power goes into trying to work out how to do something. Um, with as least effort as possible, <laughs> um, but then I, I came to realize, and I've I've coined this, uh, which I tell them to my uh, the people I was doing a workshop with yesterday. I coined this great phrase which has just sort of taken all the guilt away from from my life which is I'm not lazy I'm differently productive. So I I get things done but in a different way and I you mentioned that you feel guilty if you yeah if differently you've not written
0: <laughs> productive. That's what we are.
1: <laughs> yes. That that you mentioned that you feel guilty if you don't write and I I tried to live a totally guilt-free existence, you know. I was baptized a Catholic, and confirmed a Protestant, so I've got guilt from both sides of the um, the Reformation. Um, but basically, if I don't, I, yes, I am a full-time writer. That means that I have to write a book. That does not necessarily mean that I have to beat myself up if I'm not at my desk at nine o'clock in the morning. Um, you know, I, I come from a background where, like, the work ethic is prized and, you know, I feel like I should be doing that and I've just decided to, to scrap all that uh the task at hand is writing a book. The task at hand is not sitting at a desk tearing your hair out. So, however, however you do that, that works best for you is the most important thing. Yeah. So sometimes I write. I write. I write sporadically. Um, you know, I, I sort of I write for a bit. I take the dog out. I write for a bit. Uh, I read for a bit. I I sometimes you know sort of play Scrabble on my phone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I sometimes watch a bit of TV. Fine. I play my guitar, um, that, that's just the way it is, I, I'm not going to f- feel guilty about not having a set period of time where I'm doing stuff, I just, as long as I get it done, and happily I can report that I've nearly finished my second novel, doing it in that way, and not tearing my hair out, so, so that's, <laughs> that's how I go about things.
0: By whatever means necessary, I think that's people are a different. good, yeah.
1: Some people need a routine, my partner needs a routine to get stuff done, I don't, yeah.
0: People are differently productive. But differently productive. I'm taking that yeah. away. <laughs> well, thank you very okay. much, Fiona, for, for, for joining my stage. Thank, and thank, thank you very you, much. Fiona, for thank, you well.
1: thank you, Fiona. Thank you, Will.